Welcome to the Prison Post. This is our monthly policy edition hosted by CROP's Director of Business Development, Ken Oliver. As a former policy director himself, Ken invites guests who keep their fingers on the pulse of current legislation and how California's laws are both impacting currently and formerly incarcerated citizens. These thoughtful conversations provide insight into the direction that our state is moving and what we can do to help in mass incarceration while responsibly reforming our prison system. Welcome to another edition of the Policy Post. I'm Ken Oliver. Uh, I'm blessed and we're all blessed to have with us today Marlene Sanchez, which is the Deputy Director of the Ella Baker Center. Welcome, Marlene. How are you doing today? I'm good, Ken. How are you? Thank you for having me. Absolutely. It's good to see you. Uh, A lot of listeners uh, don't know you. I I have the privilege of knowing you, so it's, it's, it's great to be able to uh, hear some of your wisdom and hear you drop some of those pearls a day about policy and the state of uh, criminal justice reform in the state of California. You're a leader and have been a leader for a lot of years now, and we all look up to you. So uh, it's an honor to have you here today. Thank you. Yep. So I guess I want to start with just giving people some context and some background about who you are and, and how you became one of the leaders in the state of California for criminal justice reform. For those people that don't know, uh, tell us where you're from and a little bit about your background. Sure, I'll share a little bit about who I am. My name is Marlene Sanchez. I'm the current uh, deputy director at the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights. Uh, Started this year in May during the pandemic. Uh, But my journey started like 20 years ago. I, uh, I, I'm from San Francisco, California. I grew up in the, in the Mission District. I uh, have been doing organizing work since I was a teenager and um, experienced, um, in, experienced the system on different levels. Uh, I would say that the first time that I experienced um, the system was when I was about five years old and the police barged into our home to look for my father, who later received a 20-year sentence for drug sales. Um, And, um, you know, and then at the age of 11, I got in a fight at school and was arrested and caught my first case at, at 11 years old. Um, and then I, you know, I also I also got really active uh, doing HIV and health education in the 90s. And so I really feel like I also got my feet wet um, in the community via um, harm reduction, HIV work um, and and also youth organizing. Wow, that's that's a, a rich and textured history. Uh family history uh, that you have living over there in San Francisco with family. Um, for you, having experienced some of the experiences that you went through and then experiencing the criminal justice system firsthand directly, uh, what would you say was the transformation point for you when you decided to start being of service and giving back and dedicating your life to this work? Yeah, there was a there was a woman um, actually by the name of... Uh, Julie Posadas, who actually came into the detention center where I was at, and I was fighting uh, my, I was fighting a strike, um, and she came in and did some training on on, on street law, uh, which she called street law, and I remember just being like, oh man, like this is, you know, like nobody has come in to really game us up on this information, right, and. Right. 
since then, I, you know, I feel like that, that was pivotal. I mean, it definitely wasn't the only, um, moment where I feel like I had some, some, uh, like awakening in terms of like my own analysis of what was happening in the world. Uh, but that was one of them. The other one was uh, learning about Mumia while I was incarcerated <clears throat> and writing to him. Um, and then, and then later writing to my father and asking him just like how much money he was making in prison and, um, and then learning about just the prison industrial complex and how incarceration is modern day slavery. And I feel like that was in my teen years and I just, I never um, looked back and it, was, it definitely was like the blindfolds were taken off and, and, and things started to really make sense. And I started to, to get the, the language to really articulate what was happening in, in my world and in my, in my family um, through those experiences. So really I would say being politicized, um, being politicized um, was transformative for me. It really um, was, I was able to, you know, people who knew me back then would say like, Oh, she was so angry. (laughs) Um, That's what they always say about us, right? Yeah, And I I was like, rightfully so. I was like, very angry um but what was I, I but i was able to then channel that anger towards uh my fight for um a more just world absolutely i want to just if you don't mind take it back to what you said you said something about mumia right and, and a lot of our listeners may not know who mumia is but i think it's fascinating uh that here you were this young woman uh politicizing and becoming conscious yourself and you hear about this cat that was part of the Black Panthers, who's a political prison in Philadelphia, uh, for those who don't know. How did you connect the dots to get involved with Momia's case? For, for those of us in the movement, we know that he's heavily politicized, but for somebody who wasn't as conscious then, how did you connect the dots with Momia and, and, and uh, share a little bit about what inspired you to write Momia? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I can't remember what video I watched, um, but we definitely watched a video <clears throat> And we learned uh, about his case and we actually did uh, a little bit of um, we, we used his case to be able to, to dissect it and look at where the like racial um, biases were happening to, to Mumia's case. We just didn't have the language then to talk about it like that because uh-huh. we were constantly practicing like what, what we were going to say in our own case. Right, right. <laughs> um, but um, I think definitely being able to like learn about his case and see it through a lens, um, like a racial justice lens, um, really made things really clear. Like here we were, I was like 14 years old and I can see that it was, you know, it was racially motivated and it was unjust. Sure, sure. And I, I think I, we didn't really know what to do. Um, and so so I just wrote to him. That's that's great. And, and I'm sure that your letter moved him. He gets thousands of letters from people all over the country. But to uh, have someone who has an active mind and is, is looking to get into the movement like you to get a letter. I know that was inspiring to him. It had to be. Um, I, I, we, I have a personal connection with you kind of vicariously through all of us and none. I'm a, uh, a proud member of all of us and none. And uh, when I came home from doing 24 years in prison, all of us are none slash legal services for prisons with children. Uh, was an organization that embraced me and, and, and gave me a job and a shot to actually get out there and, and use my chops and my talents to kind of uh, get active in the movement. And um, you're on the board of that organization, and you also are one of the founding members of All of Us and None. So I, I, to me, that's very inspirational uh, to know that you're part of an organization and uh, part of leadership that 
gives people chances to get into organizing, to get into policy work uh, coming out of prison. Uh, there aren't a lot of organizations that do that and make that a priority. And so can you tell us a little bit about the conversation that you had initially when you co-founded All of Us or None and what kind of inspired you to uh, be 10 toes down with that? Yes, many moons ago. Um, <laughs> you know, definitely uh, remember having a conversation with Dorsey, uh, one of my mentors, um, about a retreat that um, Peace Development Fund was going to put together. Um, and he was going to bring together a whole bunch of uh, folks who've been uh, doing this work, like Susan Burton and George Galvis and a few other folks who are, are also close uh, friends and mentors right. um, uh, to this retreat. It was a two-day retreat in Oakland. Um, and I remember telling Dorsey, like, well, I need to co-facilitate with you because like, we can't let, we can't forget about the young people. Right. Um, and I remember always, um, you know, you know, I did a lot of work in, in juvenile detention centers and going into like the, the DJJ and, you know, those places felt like, you know, many prisons and, um, a lot of young people were coming home, um, and not really connecting to to the work that was happening, and so I remember I remember um, talking to Dorsey about co facilitating, and then just bringing like a ton of young people to the retreat. Right. Um, and so um, that is in in that retreat. I mean, we didn't know what was going to come out of that retreat. Um, we were doing some long term planning, but definitely um, all of us or, n- or none was was born out of that retreat, and some of the first goals was that like nothing about us without us and that like we were going to um, form uh, or form this movement that it wasn't going to be another nonprofit that we were going to to do movement building because we know that in movement building we see more long lasting change than we do in like like a two three year campaign or a policy win right that like that it's through movement building that we are going to be able to build bridges and make long lasting change. And I don't know, I want to say like 20 years later, we're still at it. <laughs> oh, no, absolutely. I mean, what's, what's, what's dope about that story is that there wasn't a door for the youth and you made a door. Like you talk Dorsey, like, you know, you don't have a door for me, but I'm gonna make a door and I need to make this happen. So that that's part of being a real life soldier uh, in the movement and you made it happen. That's probably uh, why you're such a, a valiant leader today. Um, You've come a long way since then. Uh, you said 20 years ago, or approximately 20 years ago, and now you're the deputy director at the Ella Baker Center uh, and, and a highly esteemed uh, leader in the movement. Tell us a little bit about what you do at the Ella Baker Center and why you chose the Ella Baker Center to continue this work uh, and what you're doing. Yeah, so the Ella Baker Center is um, an organization that has been around a long time as well. It's about to celebrate 25 years. I do remember uh, being in being a, a young person um, and um, joining campaigns to close youth prisons, you know, many years ago. Um, and so the Ella Baker Center, when I when I saw the the position and saw the opportunity, it felt like a, a perfect fit uh, to be able to to do both the like organizing and policy work and and continue to do the 
organizational development work that I've been doing uh, for the last 15 years. It just felt like a perfect fit. Um, Ella Baker Center has a strong like racial justice analysis. It is named after a fierce and brilliant civil rights leader, Ella Baker. Um, we actually just celebrated Ella Baker's heavenly birthday. And um, right. her birthday was on Sunday. And we did a, a, a special virtual birthday party for her on Monday. Um, and really, uh, like Ella Baker really... Uh, represents um, a lot of the leadership development work that I also feel really committed to um, the way that Ella Baker uh, didn't just lead, but she made sure others um, led with her. Um, I think it's something that I'm continue to be inspired by. It's is that as leaders, uh, we got to constantly be working to develop other leaders. Um, and it isn't just about like one leader. It is about many leaders um, and different type of leaders, whether that be uh, young people, older people, transgender people, women, men, um, that, that it's going to really take all of us um, and that everybody um, has innate leadership. And so, I think in that in that spirit, um, Ella Baker Center is really working um, to really um, lead policy change, and 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 most recently uh, has developed a really strong uh, network of folks, of leaders inside of prisons who are helping to really lead our policy work. And so, even as like leaders who've been in the work a long time, we have to take a step back and make sure that folks who um, haven't had an opportunity to lead or haven't had a uh, voice in the policy realm or in the movement, um, really get that opportunity to to lead as well. Yeah, we, we really appreciate that, Marlene, because, you know, there's not enough people all the time that get the opportunity to participate in this work. It's important work. Uh, there's hundreds of thousands of people, millions in some cases, uh, that we're fighting for on a daily basis, uh, our youth, uh, women. Uh, that's an important piece of the work that I've learned since I've come home uh, because being a, a man myself and being part of a system that has, in, in the peak when I was in prison, up to 170,000 people in, in men's prisons in California. And what I learned from having conversations with people like Amika and people like Daniela and people like Amina uh, and April Grayson and Susan and Vanya um, is the importance of centering and having conversations about women in this criminal justice movement, because when we think about criminal justice conversations, typically they center around the male population and learn. I learned so much working in the same offices with CCWP and learning from people like Hamdia and others that I named. I'd like for you to talk a little bit about the importance of women's voices and the centering of women's issues in the criminal justice movement. Uh, I think it's important to always uh, lift that up, and I'd like you to be able to talk about it and why you think it's important. Yeah, definitely. It's definitely been like a long time coming. <laughs> um, and women's, I feel like women's, like prioritizing women has been um, excluded because of the numbers. Uh, the, the, the numbers. I remember years back um, when we were fighting for girls who were incarcerated, we constantly heard things like, but the percentage of girls is so small in comparison to men. Um, and really it isn't about um, like a comparison. We know that the needs are, are truly different um, and that if women are not, 
at the forefront of this movement. We we have a it's just a missed opportunity. It is a missed opportunity, um, and the whole movement suffers. Um, not just women, but the entire move. It's a missed opportunity for for the entire movement to really look at things through an intersection. Um, I think that that is what women bring to this like intersection of like the whole family, the whole community. Um, you can't talk about women and not talk about the entire family. Uh, many times we talk about men and men's issues and the, the entire family uh, conversation is not in that conversation. It should be. Um, and that's why it's important that like we, we center women, we center entire families. Um, we're constantly looking at gender justice as a more expansive um, way to like really address like all of our human rights. Right. And so that like, you know, um, gender justice really encompasses um, all of those intersections together that you know encompasses our 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 trans family members, our gender nonconforming family members, um, and all of the all of the conversations around um, you know decriminalizing sex work and you know like all of those conversations um, um, need to need to be front and center if we're talking about liberation. And so, like, if we're talking about a specific policy, I think that that it, it's a little different. And folks, it got to be really specific with like who they're talking about. But when we're talking about movement building, um, we need to be inclusive, um, and we need to be able to be more expansive and include all of those all of those uh, folks um, in that conversation. Absolutely. And I think that we've, we've seen that in various campaigns, like even as recently as for voting rights, you know, most of the testimonials and stories center around men, but obviously it's a very important issue for women to have their voting rights too. And there's thousands, tens of thousands of women uh, in California who've been disenfranchised before. So, uh, you know, every chance I get, I remind people that we need to lift up the stories of the women that are affected because in many, in many cases, women have it harder than men in incarceration. And in many cases, women are incarcerated as a result of situations in dealing with men, whether that be, uh, you know, domestic violence issues or whether that be, you know, drug issues where they were, they had a boyfriend or a man that was involved with the drug trade. So uh, I think lifting that up is important. Do you think that this historical election that happened uh, a couple months ago with, uh, Kamala Harris being the first woman and the first woman of color, which I think was the central story for me. Like I didn't care about Trump and I didn't care about Biden. And that wasn't a conversation personally that I was excited about. I was really excited about what happened with the vice presidency, right? And and the historic nature of that. Do you think that the issue of the centralization of women will be easier now that a woman and a woman of color is been voted into such a high position or do you think it will have little effect or what's your position on that or how what do you think about that yeah it has a huge effect um you know i i, I got to work with kamlo when she was uh in san francisco um and i've seen her her politics evolve um and she is consistently changing and growing um and have definitely seen um her position on things really really shift um and i think you know, this was um, historical to see um, a woman of color uh, be like vice president, and and I know everybody has a plot like she's going to be president soon. <laughs> um, and you know, but I what 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 it 
does, um, you know, definitely brought a lot of like hope um, to folks and um, just, you know, there was a lot of talk about like all of the, you know, all the, the, the young women of color who are really looking um, as this, this is this historical day um, as a, as, you know, as like, this is a, this is something that's obtainable now because um, she has made it to that, to that position of power. Um, and yeah, no, I think it's, it's huge effect. I think, you know, I think how um, I think we still need to we will still need to hold Kamala accountable. But I think that there'll be a little bit it'll be different in terms of not having to explain why certain things are important, um, yet still holding holding her accountable to, to the kind of change that, that we want. I think it's a little different when we're constantly having to explain like why certain issues are important. Um, and that changes things when you have a, a woman of color in that position. Absolutely. I think what's interesting to me is that, especially from people in our movement, you mentioned a word that, that touched me, which was evolve. You talked about her evolving. And I think if anybody looks at Kamala in 1993, sees a very different Kamala mm-hmm. than see in 2020. And we, we oftentimes in the criminal justice movement ask for forgiveness. We ask for people to look at us in different ways. We ask for people to understand what redemption means and what it looks like. But then sometimes we don't often afford that to other people, right? And so whether you agree with Kamala or not, you, you have to buy into the fact, at least if you're, if you're one of us in, in, in the movement, uh, that people deserve the opportunity and space to evolve. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it just, it, it fascinates me when I, I hear people that, you know, just spent a lot of time in prison, get out, they're asking for people to look at them in a different way, and they, they expect that uh, in the movement, but then they're not willing to give that to people that they may disagree with. And I think that uh, it's important for us not to copy the structures and systems of the people <laughs> that we fight against every day, the oppressors, right? We have to make sure that we get out of those mindsets of judgment and allow people space to do good work. And I think that uh, she will do good work. I think she sent a message to black women and women of color all over the country. Uh, and I think that she's, she's on a seat that she recognizes uh, she's being looked at and, and will be held accountable. And I, and I want to give her the benefit of the doubt uh, until she disearns that, so to speak. Right. Definitely. Yeah. So I think that's important. Um, I want to talk a little bit about criminal justice reform in California and what happens after criminal justice reform, if you don't mind. Uh, because I was in the forefront of policy. I did a lot of policy when I was at LSPC, and I got the opportunity to work with a lot of organizations from L.A., you know, all the way up to Sacramento. And we pushed a lot of law changes in California, seen a lot of law changes in the criminal justice space for the last 10 years, right? Um, but what I didn't hear a lot of conversation about is what happens after people are released. Right. And I think we all got caught on our toes a little bit when COVID happened, the pandemic happened and tens of thousands of people were getting out. And, you know, the prison population for the first time is about 90,000 is probably going to go to about 80,000 in 2021. I'm wondering, are we doing enough as a community, as organizations to put pressure on uh, Sacramento legislators, the governor, to build infrastructures to support uh, people's opportunity to succeed because I think the last thing that any of us wants is for two or three years from now, because we don't have those infrastructures in place 
like people are returning back and getting caught up in that cycle of resentism because they've been pushed to the edges. And so I'm interested in hearing your perspective on that and, and what we could be doing or what you think we may be doing to support people uh, that are being released uh, from all of our work. In many cases, uh, the work we're doing on the front end. Yeah, I mean, you know, this year, 2020 was a, a tough year for, for, many, for many reasons and also like just pol- policy-wise as well. Uh, but we also had some great wins um, and were able to pass some, some great policies. Um, and so we had some momentum there. Um, one of those uh, bills was the, the juvenile realignment. Um, and I mentioned that because that bill um, is really also going to ensure that money comes back to the county, that as we are looking at closing institutions or or reducing the number of prisons, uh, people in some of these prisons, that we are looking at the at the numbers. We are looking at the budget and we are seeing how much is actually going to go back into the community. Um, and so I think we need to be doing more of that um, and consistently looking at like what the true cost of uh, reentry is and in, in comparison to, we, we know that that is like not even in comparison to like what it costs to incarcerate um, someone, right? Like I know just in California alone, it's like almost half a million dollars to, to incarcerate a person for a year. It's, it's ridiculous. Right. Part of that is because as the crime rate is going down and as there is less and less young people in those institutions, the institution still has to account for inflation. Like as, as long as we have these kind of institutions, then we are not, we are not using the money wisely, right? Because it is just sucking it up. Um, and so I think with reentry, um, similar, I think we need to definitely be looking at like what it truly costs to like support folks, um, when they're coming home. What does that, what does, what does that infrastructure really need to be? Um, and also not assuming, I think there's also this assumption that like people have nowhere to go. Um, I, I've been hearing a lot of that with some of the work around, um, you know, calling for release of folks because of COVID, right? And we know that there is uh, people who can be released who actually do have places to go and do have families, but the family lacks support and resources in the community that sometimes folks are going back to lacks those resources. I mean, there are certain cities that we know are inundated with resources and others that have like that are just like depleted um, in terms of their infrastructure to even provide um, housing and food and and jobs and, you know, just the basic stuff. Um, And so I definitely feel like we need to be having um, a conversation around like what that does that infrastructure really look like that is centered um, through the perspective of folks who are still currently incarcerated um, and folks who have recently come home. And we need to really be listening to them and asking them what they need um, and, and then helping to really build that regardless of where folks are going. Right. Cause it, it, it's interesting because, you know, this year was so reactionary in reference to like things like Project Room Key, which turned into Project Home Key, and almost a billion dollars is being given to put people in hotels and motels, which is transitory living, but no one had, no one was having conversations about how you pathway people into long-term sustainable housing. I mean, a hotel room is almost equivalent to a large cell in many cases. And uh, no one 
was talking about what that would look like after the hotel and the motel stuff went away. And so, you know, in the spaces uh, that I frequent, you know, I try to have conversations about what does this infrastructure look like? And, 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 you know, it's more than just the housing component, right? For people, that's, that's a key component and one of the, the, the biggest components. But, yeah, it's a big meeting. Yeah, and then you, but you talked about jobs, and, and because the reentry system is so siloed, what's interesting is that you know you have a lot of these pay-for-play placement agencies. I don't want to call out people's names that they quickly usher people into these minimum wage jobs, and they get placement fees. They're making money off of putting this in these jobs. But in the Bay Area, I know for me, even when I was working at LSPC, like I couldn't afford to live in Oakland, right, on my own and pay rent. In a, we're about you know getting into something when I stepped outside my door, and so how do how do you how do we fix that or what do you see is a fix um, for that to to put people in position where they can be self sustainable at some point rather than just a handout where we're like we're you know hand to mouth feeding people for a year and then kicking them to the curb. Yeah, no, we definitely need some some pipelines um, from like prison to some of those careers um because i you know there's some like we, we we've known this for a long time right we got some like brilliant minds um behind bars and some folks who uh would be great leaders um in in when they come home they're leaders now while they're currently incarcerated um one thing we're doing at the ella baker center is we're going to be launching a inside outside fellowship um, and so we are um doing inter- second inter- rounds of second interviews now, but there's going to be a, a, a fellow on the inside and a fellow on the outside um, helping to lead some of our policy work um, and, and really um, create some pipelines too and like build resumes and create some pipelines even before folks get out. Um, and that we're not even looking at that as like, we want you to come work at at Ella Baker said, we want you to go wherever you need to go. Um, right. Like true liberation is about people having also a, a choice and opportunity and a way to be able to get into um, what they want to do um, and not just right into, into the, the nonprofit industrial complex, right. uh, but that if they want to, that that's a, that's a pathway too, and that there is an opportunity and, um, that there's also a lot of policy organizations that need to be looking to folks on the inside um, and actually compensate folks for their expertise um, and support them even before they come home. Um, and I think that that because there's been a missed opportunity to really engage folks um, in the reentry conversation, that we end up with these kind of programs that are like piecemealed um, and just provide temporary relief, um, but not um, really work towards self-determination. Um, I think that we need to really be the, the, the long haul is around like self-determination and making sure that folks have what they need to be able to live whatever life they, they want to live. Um and so, yeah, I think, you know, but I think it, it's a problem with the way that a lot of these programs are organized because they are on these like program cycles and they are tied to certain deliverables with certain funding. Um, but what would it really look like to create an infrastructure that isn't, um, that is, is about um, building self-determination and that it is about um, folks being able to, to not just survive, but to really thrive that's right. Self-determination is, is what freedom is about, right? In, in many cases, I mean, the, the ability to be able to do 
what you want to do. And, you know, big props to the Ella Baker Center for creating programs that, that actually live up to that mantra and create space for people to be lifted up. So, you know, we appreciate the work that you're doing there. Yeah, um, I just would just want to say that it is led, it is uh, created and led by uh, James King, who is... Uh, Big James, we got to give props to James, right? Uh, he is the architect of this uh, fellowship, and um, I'm just like in awe with like all the ways that this, like that he is thinking about um, this this fellowship and not just being... Uh, a program, but that it is being like, it, that is a real leadership pipeline into this work. Um, even before folks come home or, and, and, you know, we're, you know, even thinking like, even if somebody doesn't come home right away, right. That, that they still deserve the opportunity to like engage and to be leaders in this work. Even if folks still have 10 years on their sentence, 20 years on their sentence, Absolutely. that doesn't mean that, um, that, you know, that it is a, about everybody's leadership. Absolutely. We appreciate that. James is a brilliant mind. The Ella Baker Center is lucky to have James, uh, just like he's lucky to have you there. So we want to give props to James too. Um, you know, we'd be remiss without talking about what happened in 2020 in policy in California. So I kind of want to get your perspective on what happened in the general landscape of California policy, but then also talk about stuff that you all did at Ella Baker Center. And then maybe after you were done with that, we could talk a little bit about what you guys' plans are for 2021 and some of your visions. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it was an interesting year. It almost felt like a, felt like a roller coaster ride. <laughs> it did, right? Uh, but we had some really great successes. Uh, we were, we uh, were able to pass the, the Racial Justice Act um, and which was huge. It's historical. It um, asserts civil rights into the courtroom and um, creates, you know, what we call like the. It adds the justice piece uh, to to the courtroom, um, and it really looks at um, uh, biases um, and doesn't allow um, for biases uh, to be uh, racial biases to be used with when um, in sentencing. Um, and convictions. Um, so that was huge. Uh, that that was a historical. That was almost going to. It almost was going to die, and then it got brought. I remember, I remember. <laughs> it, it, it got down the first time, right? And then yeah, it got, it got brought back alive. Was that a budget trailer? It, it no, it wasn't. But it was. Uh, it was a. You know, I think a lot of what was happening around the world and around the country um, definitely had an impact on on that bill. Um, then there was the the a bill to um, uh, get rid of some of the fees, the administrative fees. There's about like twenty one fees. It's called families over fees, um, and that was an economic justice bill that was passed um, that eliminates twenty one uh, administrative fees uh, related to the criminal justice system. And this is a, a one that again, like, really looks at. Like family, the impact of, of families, um, the, the impact of the criminal justice system on families. Um, and then there was, uh, the, this is a huge one. I mean, LSPC has been working on this one for many, many years. Um, and this is the one around elder parole. Um, and it made some, some changes to that. Um, and then there was, 
is uh, the juvenile realignment bill as well. That, 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 that yeah, it's huge uh, because Ella Baker Center has been working on closing um, youth prisons for many years, and we're successful in closing two. And so now these are the last three that are left uh, to be closed. Um, and that it's about closing it the right way um, sure. and making sure that the resources, we, we all know that the system likes to reinvent itself um, sure. and recreate itself. Um, and so they make, <laughs> yeah, they make sure that, that the resources after closing these prisons also follow these young people and come back to the community um, and create some local um, oversight to make sure that that is happening. And then just a lot of a lot of COVID relief um, support. Some folks on our team have been really active in the stop um, San Quentin outbreak um, and making sure that um, you know calling for also fifty percent um, reduction and um, in Santa Rita and making sure that folks who are pretrial are are home. Um, and so a lot of our work in twenty twenty went into immediate um, like COVID support. On on the inside um, and also making sure folks had resources and that kind of stuff as well. And then right now folks are working um, to demand releases and not transfers um, of vulnerable populations in San Quentin. I think there's a, there's a petition um, where folks were collecting 2000 signatures as of today. I think we're almost at 3000 um, in terms of um, holding the governor accountable to not transferring folks Um um, during this time. And then of course, like many other folks, we were supporting prop 17, Hey, prop 17. That's right. <laughs> um, 17 pass, which is great. Um, that's a huge win. Um, and then prop 15 didn't, didn't win, but we still like really worked really hard on that bill on, on that proposition. I mean, and then of course, opposing prop 20, which is, which yeah, was absolutely. a win to make sure that like that didn't pass. And that was a, a proposition that was basically trying to undo all of our good work for the last Cooper the Cooper's a nut, you know, <laughs> no disrespect, but I don't know what he was thinking about it. it was, the timing was bad on so many fronts for him to try to push something like that. It was just unjust all the way around. What I'm curious about what you thought Marlene in reference to, what I consider to be somewhat of a debacle, Prop 25, um, and what you thought about the flip-flopping that occurred from 2018 to now, and flip-flopping that occurred in, in our own industry, so to speak. Yeah, there was, you know, I think Prop 25, there was a lot of internal, um, some internal disagreements on Prop 25, um, and I'm definitely not, haven't been as active in that, um, but here we are. <laughs> yeah. that, for, for those that don't know what Prop 25 is, that's, that's the bail reform in California that started out as SB 10 uh, and recently was pushed back via referendum uh, from the bail and insurance company. So as a result, 50,000 people at least, mostly black and brown people, will spend their Christmas uh, and holiday season uh, in a county jail rather than being released uh, this year. So hopefully we can double back in 2021 or 2022 and find some other type of alternative to the cash bail uh, system. Uh, I think I think just one last thing around that. I mean, I think it was also like a conversation around like pretrial um, and kind of the way to really like roll that out, that there was more disagreement there um, than actually wanting to see the, the bail industry eliminated. And it was a, I think it was a difference in strategy. Um, 
and it, it, it divided some of our folks. And so, yeah. hoping there's another opportunity to come back and and, and fight for that. But we'll we de- we definitely have work to do in reference to the risk assessment model, and maybe if we can collectively. Uh, get on the same page and make some progress towards that. We can come together because uh, we can, we can definitely go farther working together than we can when we uh, have that in infighting type of stuff where we're disagreeing in the way that we do. Um, so that, that's a that's a good segue into 2021 mm-hmm. uh, because I'm hoping that uh, we're able to put put down a united front to continue this pendulum swing that I call it for criminal justice reform uh, and continue to get our people released from prison and make California a more just and humane place uh, for specifically black and brown people mostly, which represents about 85% of the California prison system. Uh, what's on the, what's next for the Ella Baker center and you all in reference to policy. So folks have been working really hard on their 2021 policy agenda. I know that it hasn't really been released yet, but I know one of the things that, um, uh, folks are definitely uh, talking about is going back um, is definitely working on the racial justice act and kind of how that's going to be rolled out because implementation is key. Um, and so we are going to be continuing to implement some of the bills that, that we passed, but then for 2021 going back uh, for retroactivity of the racial justice act and making sure that um, folks who've already been sentenced and convicted um, actually have an opportunity to go back to court um, to challenge um, that bias. Um, and so we are, going to go after retroactivity for next year. Marlene, can we can we talk about just a little bit the Racial Justice Act? Because mm-hmm. the Racial Justice Act slid under the radar for a lot of people. And a lot of our listeners are family members uh, of people that are incarcerated and formerly incarcerated people. And for those that don't know, to me, it's mind-blowing that we now have the Racial Justice Act and the work you all put down to make this happen, which I think creates uh, a right to sue or a right for relief if you can show that your sentence was affected by a racial bias. And there's plenty of data that's come out over the last decade or two decades to show the disparity in sentences between races. Can you talk a little bit about the Racial Justice Act and what it actually is and what yeah. how it can affect our loved ones? Yeah, definitely. And right now, you, it, it's not retroactive. That's we, we lost that piece, um, but it was a significant win to be able to have it go into effect in on January 1st, 2021. And so as of January 1st, 2021, um, if you are fighting a case, um, the... Uh, they cannot use uh, racial biases um, and it, it, against your conviction. Um, it is going to be um, something that um, is definitely now uh, considered. The way that I that I think about it is like we have these we have these protections in like employment, right? Like you can't be discriminated against for a job because of your race. Uh, we have this in like education settings, and like you can't be discriminated against because of your race. But we don't have these protections in the criminal justice system, which we know are like, it is like the driver of how many people are incarcerated. Like, you know, so it's, so it's huge. Um, I think all of the, the, the work around how exactly, um, that's going to roll out is happening now. There's already a group of folks working really closely on like the implementation of that and like, like the burden of proof and like who's going to have what. And, you know, I'm definitely, um, just, you know, 
in awe of like all the amazing work that folks have been doing around this and and the work has just started it was just like the fact that this was passed and now the work can begin um and then next year we're going to go after um uh, folks who've already been sent we're going to go after retroactivity for folks who've already been sentenced already been convicted who have a case um in an opportunity to go back to court you know i think for for many of the folks who are currently incarcerated and loved ones, this provides some hope for them to be able and something to like, uh, like a tool to, to use to go back and fight. We're constantly looking for tools, um, that folks can, can use to like fight for their own freedom. Um, and so this is going to be a huge, um, tool for families, for attorneys, um, and for incarcerated um, people to to go back and, and fight once we go back to retroactivity. But right now, it only um, um, is for folks who are going to be fighting a case in 2021. How, how difficult, Marlene, do you see it uh, for us to actually get the retroactive piece? Because there are, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with Garcon and what he came out with when he got elected. He's talking about rolling back and allowing people to be resentenced who have enhancements, which is about 80% of people's times. Um, I would imagine that by advancing petitions that can show racial bias, uh, mm-hmm. that more progressive DAs, maybe like Bodine or, um, or Garcon, may be willing to look at the petitions anyway without the retroactive piece. So that's there's two pieces I want to know. A, how hard is it going to be? And do you think there may be some leeway at a DA's discretion to, if we can make a case, to actually uh, allow people to be resentenced? That's a good question. I don't have the answers for all of those. Uh, but I know that in 2021, we are going to go um, after enhancements as well. Um, one in particular, like uh, gang enhancements. Um, I think that one is uh, long overdue as well and also shows um, some racial biases. But I think of all the enhancements, um, there is going to be some opportunity to really show how those are, are racially um, motivated to, you know, people's sentences. Yeah, we need to repeal the STEP Act, right? We need to repeal that act all the way around for the is responsible for gang injunctions and, and so many uh, sentences. Yeah, the last the last two I'll mention, um, but I know that folks are still doing uh, research around uh, some of the work for 2021 is around uh, the uh, ending felony murder um, for LWAP um, and then phone and phone and store cost. Um, there's always we, we I think the economic justice bills are also really critical uh, to continue to. Um, uh, make shifts for, for entire communities and families, right? And like, and, and really challenge the impact of incarceration. Um, and then, uh, programming, uh, inside of prisons, um, is something that we, um, are also going to be working on, uh, because this is important to folks on the inside that, like, yeah. um, that we want to make sure that, like, folks who still have to live in these kind of, um, inst- I call them institutions of torture, um, that, that folks who still have to live there, um, also deserve, um, an opportunity, um, and make sure that, you know, and programming is important for folks in terms of like how they do their time and, and survive in these places. And so, uh, programming is, is something that we're also going to be working on as well. Well, that's great. We, we look forward to seeing all the great work that you and James and everybody else at Ella Baker is going to do in 2021 and continue the work that you did in 2020. We appreciate 
the the gains that you made, especially with the racial justice act. I'm just super hyped about that. It's, that's you know it's long overdue and something that should have been instituted in criminal justice, as you mentioned, uh, for decades now. So I want to pivot just a little bit and talk about you personally, right? If you don't mind, put you on the hot seat a little bit. Uh, what do you what do you see as deputy director now? I mean, you know, you're in a, a, a super lead position. Uh, what is your vision for Ella Baker Center in this work? And what would you like to see uh, as a leader? And then if you can tell me what you'd like to see for yourself outside of Ella Baker self, like your long term visions and goals and give some inspiration to the formerly incarcerated men and women that are listening uh, to this show now, because I think you're a great inspiration. Thank you. Um, so 2021 for Ella Baker Center, we're definitely we're going to be rolling out um, our strategic plan as well um, and really sharing our evolving uh, definition of like how we build power um, and continue to build power. Um, we've um, some of the, the stuff that I'm committed to um, in, in this new role. This is a it, it is a new role at the Ella Baker Center and one of the things that I'm definitely committed to is uh, leadership development of black women, formerly incarcerated people, young people, um, you know, like Ella Baker, um, that like leader creating a, an organization that um, like, what does it really mean to have a culture of leadership development within an organization? How do we make sure that there is opportunities um for folks who are also not a part of our organization, right, who are members because we are a membership um, organization. Like, what does it really mean for our members um, to have leadership within our organization? Um, So that stuff is really important to me. Um, The other thing that's important is that we really walk our talk, that we're an organization that is not, doesn't just have a great mission um, and the great communications, but actually that, that our culture represents the the, the change that we want to see. Um, I've been in the nonprofit uh, work for, for many, many years, and I feel like sometimes we get lost in the like hustle and bustle of like just running a nonprofit that we forget why we got into this work in the first place. Um, and sometimes why we started nonprofits and didn't just go work for another nonprofit. Um, you know, I heard people say like, well, I started a nonprofit because, you know, I was sick and tired of, you know, kind of like how things went down in, in, in certain nonprofits, right. Or having no, no power, or no leadership within that organization. So I went off and I started my own and, um, I don't think we need to create more nonprofits, but we need to change the culture of, of nonprofits. And the Ella Baker Center has already been shifting its culture. Um, you know, the organization, the staff, there's a, a union. Um, and so there's like, you know, power um, in, in the staff, in the, you know, because of the union. Um, it is one of the things that attracted me to the organization. I was like, that's what's up. Like the staff, you know, even though I'm, I'm not in the union, I'm in the management, um, position to me, it's still, uh, like if we are about building power, then that is part of it. That is how workers build power, um, is unionize. Um, and so, so I'm really excited, um, to take it to the next level and really, um, create a culture that we're really proud of, um, and that really models the change that we want to see, um, so important, right? yeah. so important so important to walk that uh, and not just pay lip service to it and the fact that you're developing programs and you're constantly thinking about centralizing the voices of the up and coming leaders the youth the people coming out of prison wow that's man that's dope and uh 
I really appreciate you speaking on that because I think it needs to be spoken on. I think people need to hear it in a real way. So thank you for that, Marlene. Uh, what's up with you, though, Marlene? I mean, what, for, your, for your personal uh, vision and trajectory, I mean, what do you see for yourself long term? Are you, are you married to the movement forever? Do you have other aspirations? I mean, I know you have a family, a beautiful family. Uh, what do you want and where are you going? Yes, I am. So any day now, I'm waiting for my first grandchild to be born. Uh, so I am super excited about that. Like, Congratulations. I, I'm like, I can't wait um, to just like shelter in place with a new baby. Um, <laughs> that isn't mine. <laughs> right. I can sleep that night. Um, so I'm just super excited for my, my family and my, for my son and just seeing, um, you know, my family healthy and, and growing. Um, and I think I am married to the movement long, you know, forever. Um, and, um, definitely in this for the long haul, but I, but part of, part of this work is really about developing other leaders, um, and creating other opportunities so that we are not, so I don't have to do this, the same work forever, right? I can move into other roles and support other folks and, um, you know, and so I am, I'm definitely excited, uh, to just you know be able to to do good work at the Ella Baker Center so that other people like like James and other folks at the organization can then you know sure. you know to their 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 amazing leadership that they're already um, in and and I'm hoping you know I hope I get to travel this year because I haven't gone to any well I've gone so, somewhere but so it's, like we're, it's like we're doing shoe programs right we're doing glamorized solitary confinement programs in many cases I mean yeah. being locked up in the house right. No, it doesn't compare. <laughs> it does no, not compare. I, I know, I know. It's, 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 it's a it's a high class version of being locked down all the time. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm, I'm hoping for that in 2021, um, and then also, um, you know, sharing more work around the the impacts of, of families on incarceration um, and. Like you know, some of the, the the history of like family separation and um, and like how we can learn from some of that to really figure out like what what does our our work moving forward look like um, as we take an approach that really encompasses the entire family and community. Um, so I think to your earlier point around like women and um, and men, um, you know, I really want us to see a shift that we talk about families and communities um, when we're talking about, um, you know, like what, and we're like reimagining like what's possible, right? That we're taking in, into account what does a whole community really need to thrive? Um, so moving more away from like the individual to more of a community um, narrative. So like really shifting the narrative. And then I think for youth, I'm super excited for like the youth justice work and organizers and folks who've been doing this work for like 20 plus years, um, to really, uh, reimagine, uh, with young people and other folks, like what does a, a new infrastructure look like? Cause we have a, an opportunity right now to do so, um, and to really imagine a ecosystem and supportive uh, system for young people that um, that moves away from punishment and and looks more towards youth development and and healing um, for our movement. Investing in people, restoring lives, healing communities, reshipping some of those fifty billion dollars of law enforcement money back into people. Right. And communities and, and, and making sure we put people in position 
to thrive. So we definitely need to keep our foot on the gas in reference to those dollars and where those dollars go, uh, especially with the closure of the DJJs and making sure that all that money doesn't end up with CPOC and, and others that are just trying to re, 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 reinvent system power structures, right? Uh, I was involved with several conversations where, you know, people were acknowledging that now the money's shifting from the CCPOA to CPOC, uh, you know, they're becoming a stronger union force uh, to distribute uh, services to our youth. And, and those don't always look like community services, as we know. So uh, that sounds like a great plan. I'm, I'm congratulating you on having a grandchild. I know that uh, you're happy about that, and, uh, as you should be. I can't, I can't wait to see pictures on your social media because I know you'll be showing them, right? <laughs> so uh, we, appreciate, we, we appreciate having you here today, uh, Marlene. Um, hopefully we can come back later on in the year and have a, or later in 2021 and have another conversation about what you're doing and where you're at and what the Ella Baker Center is doing. We appreciate having you today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Prison Post, a production of the Crop Organization. We'll be sharing more stories from the world of prison reform and restorative justice, so please join us. You can listen to The Prison Post on all major podcasting platforms. Subscribe to our video cast on YouTube and like us on Facebook at The Prison Post and at Creating Restorative Opportunities and Programs.